Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. A new book looks at the history of classical music in the 20th century and the influence that World War I, World War II, and the Cold War had on shaping the future of classical music. I recently talked with renowned conductor and musical scholar John Malcheri about his book, The War on Music, Reclaiming the 20th Century, and his plea for reconsideration and reconciliation. The reason I wrote The War on Music, Jeff, was because <clears throat> I noticed that starting around 1930, the classical music core repertory stops. So for most of the people listening to this, um, whether you're a classical music person, if you whatever that might mean, or you're not, uh, you, you probably have an idea of what we call, everybody calls classical music. And it basically starts around 1700, and then it kind of ends around 1920, But there, there are almost no pieces that we all would agree on, as we all kind of know and love as masterpieces, written after that. You know, I probably, um, Bolero might be the last classical piece that everybody knows. You know, we're talking 1920s, maybe 1930. And so... If a hundred years since the core repertory has been added to, I mean, compare that to plays or to Broadway musicals or to paintings or anything else, that's worth discussing and what the, what the reason is. And part of the problem, Jeff, is I think we uh, institutions and there, it's all been involved with these wars. And and my point about the book is that we've jettisoned so much music from the 20th century because of politics mm -hmm. that the actual line, the actual line of music that continues to be fulfilled and re replenished was cut from the point of view of how we define classical music. Not so. So your first question is would have to be the answer would have to be, well, what is classical music? I mean, one of the things I say earlier on in the book was I'm sitting in an airplane. I'm reading a book called Who Killed Classical Music? And the airline attendant says, are they still writing that anymore? And by that, she meant classical music, right? Sure. <laughs> and um, so so here's here's part of the, the miracle. Well, first of all, here's the, the, the tragedy. World War One is the first time that countries decide to use music as part of their weaponry. And it's part of cultural superiority. The Germans are fighting to because they invented symphonies. They see themselves as inventing classical music. The Italians invented opera. The mm -hmm. French you know, have Debussy and Ravel and Saint-Saëns, and the Russians you know, have Tchaikovsky, etc. So they're using classical music as part of who they are and why they need to win a war, which is kind of unusual, right? I mean, this is the first time that's happening. Then for World War II, something else happens. I mean, the Germans are out to stop and ultimately kill every Jewish person, including every Jewish composer, and they're stopping that music written by Jewish composers. The problem with that is that Jewish composers wrote every kind of music. I mean, they, some of them wrote modern atonal music. Some of them wrote operettas. Some of them wrote love songs. I mean, they wrote every kind of music. There's, not, there's no style called Jewish music, right? So they had to figure out a way to define, you're allowed to like this piece, but you can't like this piece, even though they sounded very similar. Now, what happens next, and the Italians did a kind of same thing, where every composer had to write an opera, and they had to be part of the fascist world, because that's part of what fascism is. The state owns the theaters. The state mm -hmm. owns everything. Everything goes to that. So if you're going to write an opera, and you're going to have it published, and you're going to have it sung, 
you've got to be somehow have a little lapel pin, whether you agree with it or not. So then the next thing that I never could quite figure out, and this is why I wrote The War on Music, happens in the Cold War. Now, here's where everything turns around, and this becomes really interesting. The Germans are horrified, you know, and are angry and all those things when the war is over. But four of their greatest classical composers are living in America. Kurt Weill, Eric Korngold, uh, Paul Hindemith, and, and Arnold Schoenberg. They're not only living in America, they're American citizens, and they've written music. Not to mention the composers in Hollywood, almost all of whom, from the great classical golden age of movies, were Jewish, young Jewish composers who studied in their own conservatories. So what do you do with all of that? Well, you can't play it because it's too embarrassing. It's too painful. And, and we're in this weird situation where it's 75 years after World War II, and we still generally do not play the music that Hitler banned. And, and so the book is, uh, is meant to embrace a larger definition of classical music. It includes Hollywood, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but also, but it also faces what we're dealing with today. You know, Vladimir Putin is, uh, is claiming that there's a culture war to, mm -hmm. to uh, negate and cancel Russian culture. But when he talks about culture, he talks about ballet and opera and symphonies. Well, as I said, symphony was invented in Germany, not in Russia, and the ballet was invented during the time of Louis XIV, right, in Versailles. So music expresses the globe, the world that we're living in. There are no boundaries. There are styles that certain cultures have developed in within what we call classical music or any kind of music. But music, Jeff, is something that we humans invented, and we listen to music, and we listen to music, for hundreds of thousands of years, what do we hear? When people move down the river or move from one area to another, they bring music. People hear that music. They hear the music of that area. If they like it, they adopt certain characteristics of it. If they don't, they discard it. So music is the globe. Music is not either west or east or north or south. It's a great embrace. So the book, The War on Music, is ultimately a plea to open up that repertory, to link the, what we might call classical music right up to today, right up to today with John Williams and all the composers who followed out of mm -hmm. the German tradition and the Italian traditions who wrote in America during World War II and continued to teach and inspire younger people mm -hmm. right up to the 21st century. I was going to ask, you would mentioned the Hollywood, and John Williams obviously came immediately to mind, and some of his yes. other contemporaries like... Uh, uh, Philip Glass and, and maybe even to some degree um, Branford Marsalis, um, mm -hmm. uh, maybe even newer yet um, Anna Klein. Uh, where, obviously, John Williams and, and Philip Glass have have been part of the Academy for for a while, but we have others that are up and I guess you should say up and up and coming. But yeah, I, if their music isn't in a Hollywood blockbuster, are people understanding it and, and really feeling it and is that this is that the same side of is that two different sides of the same coin for some of these composers whether they are producing for film score or something that's going to be played in the great concert halls well here's the, here's the question i mean the, the reality is that as um your station has found itself transitioning with your listenership about mm -hmm. who's listening to classical music part of the reason why there isn't the feeding of that audience of younger people is how we define classical music. 
There's a certain snobbery. There's a certain exclusionism. You know, most people never liked modern music, what we call defined as modern music, which is, you know, some point of Stravinsky after the Rite of Spring and Schoenberg and non-tonal music. And yet that music and the, the, the composers who wrote in that style became defined as what is serious classical music. Whereas if you wanted to write a big melody or a great big symphonic score that's dramatic and uplifting and, and complex, you couldn't get your music performed or recorded. And so we start to call it movie music. But if you think about all those composers, whether that's Gone with the Wind and King Kong and Casablanca, or whether it's Sunset Boulevard or Cleopatra or Ben-Hur, those composers, all of whom were born in Europe and trained in the greatest conservatories, they didn't write movie music. They just wrote music. You know, they just carried the same traditions of Wagner and Beethoven and Strauss. Remember, Richard Strauss practically lived until 1950. You know, it wasn't that he was some 19th century composer. He definitely wrote in the 19th century, but he wrote all the way through the 20th century. We kind of have to find classical music away from the audience. Mm -hmm. So where does everybody go? They go back to the core. That's so-called core, and it's not fed. And that becomes the problem. And as long as we're snobs about this, as long as we look at John Williams as a movie composer, as opposed to, I think most people would agree, just stepping back, he's the greatest living symphonic composer we have, period. And he's got the biggest audience of that, and he's 90 years old, and he's a link. Because when John Williams was Johnny Williams and was playing Celesta <laughs> in the orchestra at 20th Century Fox, who was he hearing? Who were the composers who were writing? These were men who were trained in Europe, the great tradition. So he is a direct line. And if it's Danny Elfman or whether it's Austin Wintry who's writing um, uh, uh, video game scores, they're all well aware of these traditions. But if we isolate that music and say that's not real music, then then we will lose the audience. But that audience exists, right? Wow. So, Jeff, if an orchestra plays a live to picture, that's a kind of an interim kind of thing. But people are listening to symphony orchestras playing great, vast mm -hmm. um, symphonic music. So, yeah. how do you define it? That's the issue, Jeff. Yeah. Right? No, I wonder. I mean, we have. Uh, well, an artist that is a frequent guest down here that comes to mind is, is Rachel Barton Pine, and I have seen her take her electric, tricked-out violin and play Bach as right. Def Leppard to a classroom full of middle schoolers that right. have no idea that she's playing a Bach piece. Right. But that is the point, you see. We humans listen to music. Fundamentally, music only exists when we hear it. I mean, we can talk as musicians about notation on a page and studying stuff, but ultimately the, the residue is the performance. It's movement of air. And if we like it, we want more of it. So those kids don't know it was written in 1700, but it's a living person playing a violin in front of them. But here's the thing. Um, if, we, if we start opening up how we define classical music or, or music for symphony orchestra, dramatic music. We have a direct line that goes back as far as humanity. And once you start eliminating certain aspects of this, and I think that, you know, here's a question, you know, I like to ask people, why is all music either pop or serious? Now, popular is not the opposite of serious in any language, right? Right, popular, unpopular, I guess, trivial and serious, I guess, would be the real opposites here. So 
And I found out the answer to that, by the way, in, in the book. See, the reason the war on music, I think, redefines what happened in the 20th century. It opens up, and it's an invitation to fill in that repertory, because there are composers who wrote symphonies and operas that everybody would like to hear. You know, my, the example I give in Italian opera is why is the last Italian opera, the last one, Turando, which was written by Puccini in 1924? I mean, and not finished by him because he 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 died uh, on an operating table in Brussels in 1924. Well, it's a hundred years since there's been an opera, an Italian opera mm-hmm. that everyone knows and kind of loves, Nessun Dorma, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense, and it's all bound up again with World War II, the reaction to it after Mussolini's downfall, and so I'm saying, okay. World War II is not your war. It's not your grand. It's maybe your grandparents' war, your father's war. But we, in the 21st century, can open up these these borders, open up the doors, and play the music. And I think that that would transform everybody. It would, it would, it would be the link. And by the way, there's no east and west, and there's no demarcation zone because it's about humanity. To what extent do you think that one? I think having exposure. Uh, and uh, it leads to under understanding, but if there's not that exposure, it seems like we have an entire. And I, I'm speaking almost speaking more from probably from a radio station manager's perspective here, but it seems like there's an entire generation that just that that what quote unquote classical music is just completely lost on. Mm. And I'm wondering, is that partially that... cultural or or just social, uh, and may okay. have to do with where you are in 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 the country and where what you've been exposed to. Yeah, I, I'm going to take, take, go back to that because that's a really good question, which is that um, is that they all under everybody understands it. You, you're taught all the rules right from, you know, before you're born, when mom's singing to you before you're born. Mm-hmm. You you're taught what music is about from the first cartoon you see. You know, we've we've linked the visual medium of, of cinema um, and even video games or whatever it is to teach the, the, the meaning of music that has developed for thousands of years. So what is a major chord? What is a minor chord? What is a, a, a funny orchestration where a piccolo is really high and a contrabassoon is really low? And you laugh because it's goofy. It's not, it's not normal because the way we hear, which is basic human function of octaves and fifths, and we just hear music this way. So I, I would say to you that for all those people who claim they don't like classical music and have just bought the soundtrack to The Batman or to Spider-Man or, in fact, to the entire Lord of the Rings scores mm-hmm. by Howard Shore, they're listening, in Howard's case, to music that comes right out of Sibelius, right out of Bruckner. It's, it, it's longer <laughs> than any Bruckner symphony, <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, when I helped Howard write the Lord of the Rings symphony, which was a you know six movement symphony that we played all over the world. Hundreds of thousands of people came to concerts because it was the Lord of the Rings symphony. Now, if you say to me they don't understand symphonic music, I would say, oh no, they really do. They just would like to hear something that's new and is comprehensible. And so, again, we go back to the the issue of how we define it. You know, when I conducted. Uh, the Gewandhaus Orchestra, well, I mean, orchestra that's one of the oldest orchestras in the world, right? Mendelssohn, Mozart, mm-hmm. they all performed at the Gewandhaus. We did the Lord of the Rings Symphony, and we did two performances, and 10,000 people came, 
And, you know, and the, the leader of the orchestra said, you know, this was the most moving concert we played all year. That's from Gewandhaus, right? At the same time, we did that with Philadelphia Orchestra. And of course, yes, the Hollywood Bowl, you kind of expect that. But you maybe don't expect that with the Chicago Symphony. Mm-hmm. So again, John Williams has just conducted the Berlin Philharmonic. He's just conducted the Vienna Philharmonic. So things are changing. And the reason for that is not because of the snobbery of the critics, but because the personnel within the orchestras mm-hmm. have now grown up hearing Star Wars. I mean, it's mm-hmm. 1977, mm-hmm. right? So they're hearing John Williams before they hear Beethoven. And one of the reasons they want to play French horn or harp or flute is to play that music. So I believe we're in this tremendous opportunity here. We have that of shifting how we define classical music. Again, that's why The War on Music, I think, is an important book. It's the only book I know that, that, that actually addresses the issue of what, it, what is classical music? What is the line? What is the continuity here? And how can we, you know, how can we redefine, recalibrate, you know, and and it might make the world a better place. I don't know. We, I know that I'd like to hear a lot of music that I don't know. I just know the names of composers. I mean, I say later on in the book, I'm actually in no position to give you a global view of the music taken from me and you and all your listeners. Mm-hmm. Because if I say Egon Valish, you say, what, what is that? Is that some kind of, you know, <laughs> omelet? You know, and I said, no, no, he, he was a composer who wrote a biography of, of Schoenberg, but he wrote symphonies, and they're wonderful. I mean, if I say Hindemith wrote five symphonies in America, and they're terrific and uplifting, you go, Hindemith, oh, I hear he's a terrible composer. But that's the other thing here, Jeff. If you tell me that music is bad, and you shouldn't like it, there's no way for me to contradict you unless I hear it, right? So unless you play it, you can't decide. And we... We're always reassessing visual art, right? So there's a new, you know, uh, I don't know, there's a new uh, uh, exhibit of, of, of paintings by so-and-so. And we go, oh, well, now we're reappraising this person. We thought it was bad, but now it's good. Or we thought it was good. Well, you can't even reappraise music that's stolen from you because you can't hear it. And that's, that is the, the kind of Achilles heel of music, which is that it, it requires performance for you to hear it and judge it in a societal way. But that's also its power because it, it sneaks, it sneaks across borders. Um, it's it, and so we have. That's what the, that's what the book is really about. Is there an inherent responsibility on today's twenty first century composers to kind of pick up the mantle that that John Williams and others have been have been carrying for the last sixty seventy years? It's not the composers. See. It, the composers are writing this music. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the institutions. Mm-hmm. The institutions don't play it. If they're going to give a world premiere, it's going to be music of a certain style. They feel obliged to present music that's written in the old avant-garde style, which is more than a hundred years old. You know, it'll be spectral music, or it'll be music mm-hmm. that that is afraid to play a tune. It's music that will eschew any influence of, of, of jazz or hip-hop. I mean, that should feed our higher art form music. It, it should be there, just as it was for Beethoven and Brahms and Liszt and everybody else. It, it, it should, and Gershwin, one of the last people to be inspired by, by uh, ragtime, and, and turned it into an opera, turned it into piano concertos. You know, we, once we play the snobbery game here, 
you get just what you want, which is that you exclude it from the public. So I think it's more that the artistic administrators and our major conductors should be listening to and looking for the composers who are, in fact, writing in that style, but they're just generally not commissioned and they're not being played by our major and middle institutions. Those kids who hear the electric violin playing Bach would go would go do backflips if if an orchestra was playing Spider-Man mm -hmm. and playing and playing it next to Wagner and playing it with Beethoven, not as a separate Spider-Man concert, but a concert in which it's a normal thing. Listen to the music and hear how they relate. You know, shortly before Leonard Bernstein died, and I worked with with Bernstein for 18 years. In 1988, a year and a half before he passed away, uh, he came to Glasgow, Scotland, where I was music director of the opera. And we had a day off, and um, I drove him up to Loch Lomond, and I put on the cassette machine back in 1988 <laughs> um, a studio recording of Gone with the Wind, of extended excerpts from Gone with the Wind. And Lenny went nuts. And he, I mean, he hadn't heard that music since 1938. When he, you know, when he saw the movie, 1939, whenever year he saw it. And I said, you know, I dream of doing a concert in which the first half is Mahler 4, intermission, Gone with the Wind. And Lenny yelled, he said, that's impossible because I want to do that. Imagine, right? And I said, well, you know, Mahler <laughs> took some lessons. And Mahler gave some lessons to little Max Steiner when he was a kid. And I believe that the direct line out of Mahler and Strauss is Steiner, is Waxman, is Korngold. That's where they grew up. That's the music. That was music. It wasn't movie music. And Lenny said the most amazing thing. He said, why do you think I conduct it? Meaning, why do you think I love Mahler so much? Because it reminds me of the music I grew up with when I went to the movies. Mm -hmm. Wow. There you go. It's interesting you mentioned, mentioned Strauss. Strauss is featured in our upcoming Southern Illinois Music Festival that, uh, uh, and will be, that will be played at several of the area grade schools during part of, the, during part of that process. I wonder if um, folks, I don't know how exactly to, 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 to categorize them, but songwriters, playwrights like Lin-Manuel Miranda, do, can he reintroduce a population more to the operatic form? I know he hasn't written operas, but... He's done musicals, but can someone like that that has a contemporary, young contemporary following be a leader into other areas of the art form? Well, well, let me take, let me answer this in two ways. First of all, Hamilton is an opera. It's just in a style that isn't, you know, it's sung through from beginning mm -hmm. to end. What else are you going to call it? Yeah. Les Miserables is an opera. You know, and, and the bottom line, is, and I'm not saying that you have to like Les Miserables. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just saying that the fact is, it is an opera. Um, and, and, it, and if it had been produced, say, by the Met or Chicago Lyric Opera, it would have gotten four or five performances, gotten a terrible review, and would have disappeared. Instead, it opened on the West End, and then it opened at the Kennedy Center, mm -hmm. and it's played all over the world, eight performances a week, to millions of people. It's not defined as an opera, which puts people off because we've separated, you know, these genres. I call it hardening of the categories, which is a disease that we should probably get over. Um, <laughs> right? I mean, Stravinsky's when Stravinsky wrote uh, uh, the uh, Rake's Progress in 1950, 51, he wanted it to open at the Martin Beck Theater on Broadway, 
And imagine if it had opened in a Broadway theater. Would we view the Rake's Progress differently? Would we call it Stravinsky's Broadway opera? Um, but the, the, the negotiations fell through, and it ended up having its premiere at the Venice Biennale and with Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, and then it became a very serious work. But, you know, but Benjamin Britten's The Rape of Lucretia had its American premiere in a Broadway theater. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Minotti was writing operas that were being performed on Broadway. And Porgy and Bess opened at the Alvin Theater in 1935, not as a Broadway musical, but as an opera. So, again, it has to do with our institutions and the responsibility they have to sew up this broken chain here, to put it back together again. And it's not all that difficult. It just takes a little bit of courage and some, you know, and like some investigation as opposed to falling back to the same pieces and then commissioning a new piece, which sits uncomfortably in a program where your brain can't, can't actually, you know, understand the new piece if it's, you know, if it's preceded by Beethoven's overture to Leonora three and followed by Brahms Symphony number no. four. The, the brain doesn't quite work that way. It's like having, you would never serve a meal like that, right? You, you never do that kind of mixture of, 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 of densities. So again, I think it has to do with how we present this music and what we do, not whether there are composers writing in that, in that genre. What's the light at the end of the tunnel for you? And the and the and and the and and this work that you put together. Oh well, I would say I would say what I found in writing the War on Music is that music is in, in, inextinguishable. So, you know, if if certain areas close off the creativity of composers, they will just go somewhere else. Mind you, if, if you know, you have, here's a composer like Leonard Rosenman. His name is not going to be known to people. If I say that he wrote the music to Rebel Without a Cause and Giant, you go, oh, okay. Well, he was a major student of Arnold Schoenberg's, and he was the roommate of James Dean. Right? He also wrote one of the Star Trek movie scores. and he. So here's a man, brilliant, brilliant man, who, who as soon as he got his first film assignment, he, he wrote bitterly that all of his engagements in New York City dried up. No one wanted to play his music because he'd become a Hollywood film composer. The same man, right? Think about, think about Nicholas Roja. Leonard Bernstein, when he made his debut with the New York Philharmonic in the early 1940s, that program had been created by Bruno Walter. And one of the pieces on the program was a work, a major work by Nicholas Roja. All right, so that's 1943. 1945, what does Nicholas Roger do? He wins the Academy Award for Spellbound, right? A beautiful, wonderful, extraordinary score. Uh -huh, sure. Roger's music is never played again by the New York Philharmonic, ever, until I made my debut and brought it back. And I was able to tell Dr. Roger shortly before he died that I was going to conduct the orchestra in that piece. Um, so again, that has to do with the categories and the snobbery against Hollywood. And by the way, I mean, I, I know I'm going on here, uh, but why is Hollywood such a bad word? And I, this is, I, I, I address this in the book. Think about this. Before World War II, Hollywood was simply one of the major venues where movies were made. There was one in Berlin. There was London. And then during World War II, there was the Cinecittà out in Rome that Mussolini built. There was Moscow. These were just places that made movies. And, 
And there were directors and stars that went back and forth. But after World War II, Hollywood started being called the place where certainly the music was stolen, it was done for the money, it was done by people who weren't real composers. Well, these were the same words that the Nazis used to tell you not to play Jewish music. And by the way, who were all the composers at Hollywood? Well, mostly Jewish. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. So, so even, even as recently as two weeks ago, the principal classical music critic of the New York Times wrote something about a new a cello concerto by a contemporary Chinese composer. And he said that shortly before the end, the music rose into a saccharine melody worthy of John Williams. So again, the, the, the writer is using John Williams as a reason to denigrate a melody. Well, that's wrong. I mean, why would you use that? Why would you go back to that default that everything that in Hollywood is bad and venal? And Hollywood is the place where more masterpieces, more artistic triumphs have been made in the second half of the 20th century and right into the 21st century than any other source that I can think of. Not, not all of them. Of course, most of them are not. But some of them are. And, of course, it's the greatest collaborative art form ever created, you know, since the Greeks were putting on their music dramas, you know, in ancient Greece. But so, so using Hollywood as a stick to say something is bad because it's Hollywood-ish is something that I write about in the book. See, if you say it's movie music, it's bad. If you say it's cinematic, well, then that's kind of good. It's describing the same thing. Right? It's only semantics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John, it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you. I appreciate uh, the extended time that you've uh, you've provided. It's the, your, your new book sure. is The War on Music, Reclaiming the 20th Century. I'm assuming it's available at usual places. How can, how can folks find out more? Yeah, The War on Music is available um, uh, obviously, uh, it's on Kindle. It's also on Amazon, and it should be in your local bookstore by the time people hear the, the sound of my ever-dwindling voice. <laughs> <laughs> That's world-renowned conductor and musical scholar John Mountcherry. His new book is The War on Music, Reclaiming the 20th Century. For this edition of In the Author's Voice, I'm Jeff Williams.